guest today is Rabbi Meir Soloveitchik, the rabbi of the Congregation Sherith in New York and author of Providence and Power, Ten Portraits of Jewish Statesmanship. Solly, you come from a great and ancient dynasty of rabbis and you were educated at uh, Yeshiva College in New York. Who taught you history? Well, of course, uh, some of the figures about which I write, uh, the uh, biblical figures, are ones that are uh, part of the uh, essential aspect of Jewish life. Uh, for, for us, uh, these figures are are living. You, you, you were kind enough to mention my family. There's a a famous story told about my great uncle, Rabbi Joseph Soloveitchik, one of the most prominent rabbis in America. Uh, and they came over to him and asked him his thoughts on the 800th anniversary of the passing of Maimonides. Uh, and his immediate response was, this is the first time I'm hearing that Maimonides is not alive. Uh, because uh, <laughs> for us, uh, these figures uh, truly do live. As I note in the book, uh, the traditional Jewish saying about King David is in Hebrew, David Melech Yisrael Chai Kayam, King David lives and endures. And so uh, for the more ancient figures, uh, the scriptural figures uh, about whom I write, uh, these are figures that with whose stories we grow up. We read these stories in the Bible, we study them, we discuss them, we debate them. And of course, uh, I've been doing that for, for decades. It's just part of what it means to be uh, a traditional Jew. When it comes to the question of modern statesmanship, however, uh, there, I think, uh, this began as a teenager, uh, and the seminal influence, now that you ask it, was really my grandmother. Uh, my grandmother, who was actually a, a high school teacher of Tanakh, of Hebrew scripture, but was also uh, a very dedicated Zionist and spoke often about it. And in her home, the home of my grandmother and my grandfather, uh, I found uh, several different books about the history of modern Israel. Uh, and I began to read them, and uh, especially uh, the memoir of Menachem Begin, uh, The Revolt, uh, the figure with whom I conclude the book, uh, which is uh, a book that really changed my life and uh, inspired me to think about the nature of leadership. Uh, and that uh, took me, I think, into uh, uh, an obsession with, with reading uh, more even than history, biography, biography of, of great leaders, uh, which is, of course, why I uh, so enjoyed reading your masterful biographies, and I think that's how we first met. Um, and uh, my my doctoral work is is not in history, it's in theology, it's in religion. I did my doctorate in Princeton on, on Jewish theology, on modern Jewish and Christian thought, really, or philosophy of religion. And it was uh, working for the uh, Tikva Fund. Uh, that I began to think about what would it mean to combine these disciplines, to study as a theologian uh, the craft of statesmanship. In Yeshiva University, I taught courses bridging uh, political thought and religious thought, courses like Biblical Ideas and American Democracy, where we read American texts about government side by side with traditional Jewish texts about government. But I began to think about what would it mean to actually describe and diagram from a theological perspective, from a biblical perspective, the task of statesmanship. And that was the birth of this book. Yes, Providence and Power, 10 Portraits in Jewish Statesmanship. Uh, you ask about the nature of statecraft in this book. And of course, one uh, 
question that you yourself pose, and which is a key one, is how is Jewish statesmanship different from any other kind of statesmanship? Um, and uh, you have five threads, you call them, but essentially five answers to this question. And I wonder if we could go through them one by one. You mentioned um, King David earlier, and the the first of the threads is the balance between majesty and humility. You also obviously uh, talk um, about Esther and uh, another great Jewish queen whose name I'm going to uh, to uh, destroy Shlomtion, in this. Yes. Thank you, Shlomtion. Thank you. Tell us about um, about this interesting um, sense of um, of uh, the way in which she partnered with rabbinic leadership, but David was quite assertive and even aggressive, and Esther um, had her own ways of um, of following statesmanship. Talk to us a bit about that sure. first thread. So when we speak about uh, what I call the balance of humility and majesty, uh, this is actually inspired, Andrew, by uh, something you once said to me. This is when I had the privilege of hosting you in my synagogue uh, in a conversation about your Churchill biography. Uh, and uh, Churchill is, of course, the, the greatest statesman of the 20th century and a hero of mine. But I don't think anyone would call him humble. I don't think uh, you call him <laughs> you humble. Can, no, absolutely <laughs> I, not. No, I don't no. think that ever <laughs> comes up. Uh, yeah. And uh, I think I asked you in this conversation whether one could name a single great European statesman that manifested humility. And I don't know that we came up with one uh, in that discussion. And the question, of course, is what does it mean for a great statesman to make humility manifest? And uh, the answer uh, that I give is that a truly great statesman from a biblical perspective must embody uh, the initiative uh, and the brilliance, or to use the phrase from Isaiah Berlin's uh, famous essay, the political judgment that reflects statesmanship as more of an art than a science, the singular brilliance with which the statesman is blessed. And yet at the same time, the biblical statesman or the statesman operating from a biblical perspective is supposed to feel that he or she is operating within a larger providential plan uh, that is beyond uh, his or her full understanding, that at the same time, there are more things in heaven and earth than are dreamt of uh, in one's philosophy. And with David, of course, uh, what we find is, and this is true about Esther as well, what we find uh, are examples of political figures that act with cunning uh, and uh, exemplify statesmanship as an art, but also feel that at the same time, they are operating within a larger plan that they cannot fully, fully comprehend. If you read the Psalms, it's not clear when David is describing actions that he himself chose and when he's describing himself as as a, almost a pawn in, in God's providential plan. I, when I was asked originally, uh, when we were conceiving of, of the book, I was asked by the publishers, by Encounter, uh, if I would suggest a, a photograph for the cover. In the end, we didn't go with a photograph. But there's a photograph taken of Menachem Begin at Camp David uh, playing chess with Zvignev Brzezinski. Uh, just to take a break. I think uh, uh, hilariously, it was assumed that uh, Begin and Brzezinski would have a lot in common because they were both from Poland, <laughs> which is, uh, and I think it was uh, Menachem Begin's uh, chief of staff that uh, quipped that in the end, they were poles apart. Uh, but, uh, but, but of course, the, the, the photograph stands out because 
chess, we often use metaphors from chess to describe diplomacy, to, to describe statesmanship. And as I argue in the book, uh, a, a true statesman must, from the biblical perspective, simultaneously plays three-dimensional chess while feeling himself or herself a pawn in God's heavenly hand. Uh, and this is singular to biblical statesmanship, though I think uh, the one statesman outside Jewish history that truly embodied this, a combination of both brilliant, bold, independent action and the humility that I describe was Lincoln, which is why my one disagreement with you, Andrew, is, would be to cite Lincoln rather than Napoleon as the greatest uh, statesman of the 19th century. Because again, I don't think even you would say, I don't think Napoleon embodied humility either of his No, neighbor. certainly not, no. <laughs> uh, do you think, do you think uh, Esther was a, considered herself to be a, a pawn of God's um, Oh, holy... yes, because at the turning point in the book, the turning point in the book comes uh, in the book of Esther is where Mordechai, uh, when the decree against the Jews is, the decree of genocide is declared, Mordechai comes to her and says, uh, what you need to do is to go into the king's throne room and weep and wail and ask for mercy. Uh, and Esther does two things in that moment. First, she rejects Mordechai's plan and comes up with her own. Uh, and that plan, because she senses that just as if she had been Stalin's wife and came into Stalin and said, I've been hiding my identity from you the whole time. I'm actually a Jew and I've been fooling you to this moment. It would have just ended with her certain death. And instead, she needed to play on his paranoia within the reality of the court in order to in order to allow for her people to triumph. And yet at the same time, and yet at the same time, what she says to Mordechai is, gather all the Jews in the capital, let them fast for me and pray for me, uh, because I really feel that even as I act, uh, only I'll only act after a three-day fast and a three-day, after three days of prayer, because I feel myself in God's hand at this very moment. And so uh, what you don't see is sort of the, uh, the, what Churchill writes the night he becomes prime minister, that you know he slept soundly because he was just happy to be in control. That's, that's singular to Churchill's greatness, and I don't take it away from it. But it's not something that you find with true models of biblical statesmanship in the same way. I'm glad you mentioned that uh, you were the rabbi of the congregation Shirif in uh, New York City because yeah. it's the oldest uh, Jewish congregation in the United States, and yes. that just the sheer history of that your 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 wonderful um, synagogue uh, it exudes history in every brick. Uh, yes. How do you feel that that might affect your your job? You know, working in a place that is just so. Historic. Oh yes. Oh, constantly, uh, Andrew. Uh, you know, I'll, I'll I'll remind you that when I, I gave you a tour of the synagogue, um, and so I was telling you how the story was bound up. I mean, with the story of the arrival of Jews in New Amsterdam in 1654, uh, and then of course the American Revolution. And I mentioned to you that while most of the synagogue were uh, were uh, supporters of the revolution, there were a couple, a very few members that were Tories. And that their families were still in the synagogue, but they had hidden it. And then I told you that I had exposed their shame. And you quickly responded and said, it's not shame. They were great patriots. <laughs> and I, and I, I tell that story. I tell that story to this day. But, but of course, Andrew, the truth is, uh, while there may be communities and synagogues 
in Europe that stretch back further than 1654. Nothing in the United States comes close. And our, our members of our congregation interacted uh, with Washington. Uh, members of our congregation had to decide what to do when they were celebrating on Passover and they suddenly heard that Lincoln was assassinated. I, I walked into my office, my first, one of my first days on the job, and I found on the shelf that had been left was an elegy that the congregation had composed following the death of William Henry Harrison after a month after being sworn in as president. Today, no one thinks of William Henry Harrison. But at the time, when you look at it through their eyes, this was terrible because it was the first time a president had ever died in office. No one knew exactly what the status of the vice president was. No one knew what a transition, what sort of transition would take place. And so the entire history of American Judaism, as seen through my synagogue, is the story of American history itself. And of course, for me, who's so fascinated with history and such a loyal devotee of the story of the American idea, it's it's quite marvelous and it and it figures in 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 so much of what I do and say in the synagogue and outside of it. To, on to the second of the of the threads that emerge about uh, how Jewish yes. statesmanship differs. Um, there's a there's a central paradox, isn't there? That for two thousand years, um, uh, there's been no state to enact yes. this this statesmanship. Uh, talk to us about the nature of, of Jewish nationhood and, and its protection and what uh, what some of these 10 um, statesmen did to uh, ensure that. So uh, the reason why I think that there's been so little study of uh, Jewish statesmanship, uh, the reason why, and this is part of my motivation in writing this book, that there is no a Jewish version or Judaic version of Plutarch's lives, for example, uh, it is in part because it's often assumed that there can be no Jewish statesmanship for 2,000 years of Jewish history because the Jewish people did not have a state. But of course, a genuine statesmanship can involve, on the one hand, utilizing the levers of power or military might, but statesmanship can also be can also involve representing one's people, even if one does not have the force of military threat, by engaging courts of other nations and acting with a deep knowledge of those other nations' self-interest while seeking uh, the well-being of one's own people. So, for example, uh, when uh, if it's not too sensitive to bring up, Andrew, uh, when Benjamin Franklin uh, went to Paris after the, after the revolution uh, and sought an alliance with France uh, militarily, of course, uh, Franklin was not representing the United States as a military power or as a threat to France at that time. He was representing a nation that, of course, Britain didn't at the time recognize as an independent nation at all. And yet what he was seeking to do uh, was, was to act with a, a, a deep knowledge of France's understanding of its self-interest to bring it into the war and thereby to benefit of the nascent nation that was the United States. And no one would say that because Franklin was not acting from a position of power toward France, that what Franklin was engaging in was not statesmanship. It was statesmanship at the highest level. Without it, there I, I mean, that's for you to say, but I don't know if there would have been a Yorktown without with without the Franklin statesmanship in Paris. And don't so, break my well, heart. Uh, yeah. Don't break my yeah. heart. Yeah. But 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 uh, in a similar sense, uh, uh, we can find statesmanship such as this when, to give one example from one of my chapters, uh, Menashe bin Israel, a, a rabbi 
from the Portuguese community uh, in Amsterdam who had been writing uh, Judaic books uh, in uh, in Latin or Spanish uh, and had been uh, uh, corresponding in these languages uh, with figures throughout the world and had already become well-known as a public figure outside his Jewish community, suddenly seizes the moment when Cromwell is leading England with a deep understanding of uh, the theology at the heart of uh, Cromwell's worldview and travels uh, to England and petitions Cromwell uh, to allow the Jews back to England in 1656 after they'd been expelled since 1290. Uh, this is statesmanship at the highest level, of course. Just because he doesn't represent the state doesn't take away from the fact that he's representing a people that still considered itself a people. Uh, indeed, it was his community that excommunicated Spinoza for, in part, among other things, having the audacity to assert that Jewish peoplehood had ended after the expulsion uh, from Jerusalem. And so in the faith that the Jewish people were still a nation, uh, he came to Cromwell and operating from a, a deep understanding of Cromwell's own motivations, uh, sought uh, for the Jewish people to be allowed back into England. And I think that you can draw a line from the origins of that community uh, to the Balfour Declaration hundreds of years later. Uh, so, sorry, can we go 150 years before that also with, sure, of course. with um, uh, Isaac um, Abravanel? Isaac Abravanel, yes. Um, and tell us about how he did um, trying to do much the same thing with Ferdinand and Isabella. Yes, of course. Uh, uh, Abravanel is, I think, an inspiration to Menashe in Israel. It's no coincidence that some of the great examples of these forms of statesmanship have come from within the Sephardic community, from Spanish Jewry. And of course, by the time Menashe in Israel was acting, uh, Abravanel was, or, or Abravanel, as he's also known, was a legend. The tragedy of Abravanel's story is that whereas Menashe in Israel succeeded, though he didn't fully understand that he had succeeded. Uh, Abravanel failed. Abravanel is almost the, the, the mirror image of many of these other stories, because if you read his um, memoirs, memoirs which he gives us within his commentary on, the, on scripture, this was a man who had acted, uh, who had worked within two very different courts, both Portugal and Spain who had served the Duke of Braganza in Spain and then had to flee uh, from the new king that had opposed uh, the, no the nobility for whom he worked, then ended up in Spain only to enter the court of Ferdinand and Isabella. And when the, when the declaration of expulsion came down, he believed that if he had been expelled from Portugal to end up in Spain, it must surely be because God had set him up, set him up to be a second Esther that providence had placed him in this position of power and influence to save his people. And so, of course, in the end, the tragedy is that he did not succeed. And yet, when given the choice of remaining in Spain and converting or going to exile with his people, uh, he, he chose to leave. And that, in turn, inspired his people to remain a people so that successors such as Menasha could ultimately emerge with success. If we go back even further uh, to Roman times, tell us about how um, Johannin ben Zake. Uh, yes, Johannin ben Zake, yes. Thank you. <laughs> uh, prepared Israel for a, a national future. So, uh, Johannin ben Zake is uh, the mirror image of Josephus. Uh, 
uh, Josephus, of course, is known as one of the few uh, uh, the, one of the, one of the few sort of the very few survivors uh, of uh, Yotvat, uh, which he uh, defended originally against the Romans, and he essentially surrendered to the Romans and then uh, reported on the rest of the war uh, from the Roman side. Yochanan ben Zakkai, in contrast, also fled uh, a doomed Jerusalem right before it fell, but uh, received permission from the Romans for both uh, the political leadership of rabbinic Judaism to remain intact. Uh, at that point, the Jews were led uh, by uh, a rabbi that was descending from the house of David. So rather than seize leadership himself, he retained uh, the Davidic dynasty. But he also uh, established a, uh, a, an academy in Yavne in the Holy Land uh, so that rabbinic Judaism uh, could endure. And uh, he set up a number of ordinances that both uh, remembered uh, Jerusalem in ritual uh, and allowed Jews to retain the hope and the faith that one day Jews would return to Jerusalem. Uh, perhaps uh, uh, the, the once uh, most uh, famous British historian, but not nearly one that uh, I like as much as you, Andrew, uh, uh, Toynbee, uh, Toynbee uh, uh, famously described uh, Yochanan ben Zakkai as uh, creating a fossilized uh, form of Judaism. Uh, and as I argue uh, in the in, in the book, uh, drawing on the arguments of those who have come before, including the, the late great uh, Irish-Israeli diplomat Yaakov Herzog, who famously debated Toynbee in Canada, uh, what Yochanan Menzaka created was anything other than a fossilized form of Judaism. He created, uh, he helped uh, a nation to live and to endure, so that even as many secular Zionists gave no credit to Yochanan ben Zakkai uh, in describing the statesman that brought uh, modern Zionism about. In the end, uh, as I put it in a title of an essay in mine and commentary, uh, we have to recognize what Zionists owe Yavne. Uh, ultimately, there is a line to be drawn between Yochanan ben Zakkai and the birth of the modern Jewish state. And that brings us on to the third, um, nicely brings us on directly to the third of the threads, which is this concept of keeping alive the dream of of sovereignty. So it, uh, you mentioned earlier the Balfour Declaration, which of course Louis Brandeis um, was uh, was key in um, in promoting yes. after um, after November 1917. T tell us about him and also Theodore Herzl and the importance of these two in in keeping the dream alive. Yes. So it, it, Herzl and Brandeis are in the book, uh, and in a, in a certain sense, to play a very different role uh, because uh, these are two leaders. Uh, that came from a background of very, very little Judaism. Uh, uh, Brandeis never observed Yom Kippur. Uh, and uh, I think he and his brother would send to each other uh, Christmas hams around Christmas time, uh, which is maybe yeah, the yeah. least Jewish present you could say. <laughs> uh, Theodore Herzl, uh, after he was already planning uh, all of his activism, uh, regarding the Jewish state was visited by the uh, chief rabbi of Vienna. Uh, and uh, the chief rabbi, originally excited about Herzl's project, found uh, to his to his shock that uh, Herzl had a Christmas tree in his home uh, in Vienna. So they came from very, very little, very, very little 
uh, Jewish background at all. Uh, in a certain sense, uh, and we can talk about this separately if you like, Andrew, but uh, they are very different than um, another figure that I discuss, who also, it would seem, comes with very little Jewish background, uh, and that is uh, Benjamin Disraeli. We'll be coming on to him uh, we'll come uh, to that, in a minute. Because, yeah. of course, Disraeli always retains a certain memory of, of, of his Jewish background. These two come from nothing. And yet... Uh, their stories, the case I make is that they operated both with a deep understanding of the potential of politics to achieve their goals, especially Herzl, who was not the first Zionist, but was the first to truly understand that if Zionism truly wished to achieve its goals, it needed to create statesmen, it needed to create biblical, it needed to create political bodies like the Zionist Congress so that he or Chaim Weitzman could go in the court of kings and popes uh, and the offices of prime ministers and foreign ministers and act as if they represented a political entity. And yet their story is so unlikely, Andrew, so unlikely that it is, I think, one of the greatest arguments for providence in, in our time. The story of Theodore Herzl makes no sense. He comes out of nowhere. He, he writes uh, a pamphlet that changes the Jewish world at the end of the 19th century. He gives them the political body that is necessary to achieve their aim. And then he dies in 1904, right after appearing on the scene. Sitting in Basel right after the Congress, he, he writes in his hotel room, in Basel, I created the Jewish state. No one will see it now, but perhaps in five years, perhaps in 50 years, everyone will see it. And the state of Israel came into being uh, essentially exactly 50 years after he wrote those words. Louis Brandeis uh, was actually in favor of total Jewish assimilation uh, as a prominent Jewish attorney in America. And it was only through an offhand conversation uh, with a, a former secretary of Herzl that he was drawn into the Zionist movement, which placed him in a position as a Supreme Court justice to, to work with Balfour to lobby Wilson to support what ultimately became the Balfour Declaration. This is not a usual, this is not a usual uh, story. You know, I'd love your thoughts about this, Andrew. I, I, um, when uh, Neil Ferguson came out with his biography of Churchill, of, 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 of Kissinger, I'm sorry, I asked him, I said, is there some way of looking at this that, you know, had Kissinger not gone to serve in World War II and not met this mysterious man who mentored him about foreign affairs, is it possibility that he'd just be, you know, a, a modern Orthodox Jewish accountant living in Washington Heights, you know, in New York, where he just, <laughs> where he just, where he, you know, where he grew up? Uh, and uh, what Ferguson said to me is that when you write sweeping history, you tend to write history uh, as if it's one event leads to the other. When you write biography of an individual, you realize the seeming contingency in almost every event that had this not happened, this not happened. The, their whole lives were different than the world might have been different. I wonder well, what it, you think about that. Well, yeah. and also, um, and also, of course, it's not just it's not just those two. It's also the um, connection between uh, Hein Weizmann and uh, and Balfour and the way in which the First World War was going at that time oh, and yes. things that were happening in, in five different countries, essentially, all coming together to this extraordinary point of history, which- So if much contingency. As yeah. Shakespeare says um, in Troilus and Cressida, 
untune one string and hark what discord follows. Yes. And you, with the Balfour Declaration, any one string, if it was untuned, could have uh, could have let the whole thing um, and exactly. Collapse. And Herbert Samuel's wife was 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 friends with the wife of the spiritual leader of the Sephardic community in London, one of the Zionist leaders, Moses Gaster, and it was they that met Mark Sykes. I mean, there's so much yeah. going on here, and. And if it all comes down to then this man in Washington who meets Balfour, who as as late as 1905 was essentially arguing that American Jews should lose all of their public Jewishness and suddenly by 1915 is lobbying on behalf of a future Jewish state. The, the seeming events are so the events are so seemingly unlikely that, at least for me as a rabbi, uh, they make a, they make the greatest case for the union of providence and power. And that's why I seek to both learn the lessons of power from their lives, but also writing as a rabbi and theologian uh, to make the case for providence as well. Which brings us on to the neatly to the fourth of the threads. Um, which is the ability of Jewish leaders to cultivate pride in in Jewish uh, faith in the face of anti-Semitism, which I think now means that we can uh, start talking about Disraeli, um, yes. Benjamin Disraeli. Uh, first of all, how Jewish was he? You know, it was uh, he was Jewish up to the age of twelve, but then he was uh, he was baptized into the Anglican faith, and yes. yet even in uh, 1847, when he writes Tancred about uh, Jewish return, uh, he never um, feels any need. Even in a world dominated by aristocratic Victorian anti-Semitism, to apologise for his Jewishness, and of course, I know you're working on Disraeli right now, Andrew. Uh, if that, that's okay to say, I'm, I'm hoping to. I'm hoping to. Yes, yes. And uh, I, I can't say how excited that possibility makes me. I mean, this to me would be, uh, you know, uh, obviously uh, to me it would be the most exciting and as sensitive as it might have been to host you in my revolutionary synagogue to speak about George III. <laughs> I think uh, to speak about Benjamin Disraeli, we, we'll make that happen immediately. But tell us about how Jewish yes. she so, was. What to, do you think? To, so I, I think uh, what can be said about Disraeli is the following. The, the most striking aspect of Disraeli's life, I think the most striking aspect of his life, and yet not focused on to a great extent in the histories of Disraeli or the biographies really that have been written to this point, uh, is the is the way in which Disraeli put his Jewishness and his Jewish descent at the heart of his public persona. Uh, so uh, you cite Andrew in your Churchill biography, uh, the fascinating line that Churchill puts in in that strange uh, an entrancing letter that he writes about the dream he has about a conversation with his father. And Churchill describes uh, his father uh, saying to him, as Churchill describes what has transpired. And in the dream that Churchill describes, uh, Churchill's father says, oh, Disraeli predicted all this. And then in, in the dream, he says to Churchill, Dizzy saw all this, that old Jew, he saw the future. Uh, and and the fact that Churchill himself uh, that, that Churchill himself uh, has his father in his dream describing Disraeli as that old Jew. Well, it was a phrase of Bismarck's, wasn't it, from the Congress of Berlin? Yeah. Yes, absolutely. Well, that's uh, the, uh, what uh, the Bismarck's was, the alter Juda Eristermann, that old Jew, he is, the, he is the man, right, which I cite at the beginning. 
right? And of course, what that means is, is by taking that famous, and I actually cite that line from Bismarck uh, in my pref, in my, in my first chapter. Um, But the fact that, that, uh, that uh, Churchill is citing this in describing his prescience, not just his statesmanship, but his prescience, his awareness of what was to come. That I think is what captures uh, what Disraeli did with his Jewishness. Because my argument is, and this is at the heart of of Tancred as well, uh, what Disraeli is doing as a public Jew is two things. The first is is more strategic. Uh, I cite uh, uh, Andrew Kirsch's uh, wonderful little book about Disraeli. uh, And what he says is that uh, Disraeli takes what could be his greatest political liability, his Jewishness, and play and makes it the heart of his political mystique. His mystique. Uh, Adam calls this an act of jujitsu, using your seemingly <laughs> weakest uh, aspect uh, in, in as as your strength. So that's strategic. But of course, I would not think that it would be strategic when you're still a, a, a politician on the make to to write a novel like Tancred about how important the Jews are to the world. It's such a strange novel to write in general, and especially if, if you want to succeed in politics. And what Disraeli essentially argues in this novel, much as he famously argued during the debate about allowing Jews into parliament, is that the Christian West owes its moral tradition uh, to, 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 to the Torah, uh, to Sinai, that's the argument he he, he makes in 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 Tancred. And for all the seeming progress in the world during the period of the Industrial Revolution, if the West forgets what it learned from the Jews, then technology and progress uh, will uh, will actually not involve progress at all. But it will actually produce the most terrible destruction, and that's very much uh, and the loss of what Churchill felt, of course, wasn't it? And the loss you know, of he, he says that uh, very much so. You have in your book, um, you have in your book, Andrew, an amazing. You'll remind me of it, but uh, it was published in the '30s, right after he wrote, uh, right after he wrote that essay about Moses' leadership. Uh, Churchill wrote this prediction about 50 years hence, or something like that. Uh, and mm, and yeah, and he described yeah. he describes Zoom. <laughs> he describes how <laughs> right. He describes how we'll be able to participate yep. in meetings and the nuclear bomb. Uh, the nuclear uh, bomb. Exactly. And then he says something like, "And with all this technology, the modern man, I think this is his phrase, the modern man can do the most terrible things, and the modern woman will support him." That's Churchill's phrase. And if you contrast Disraeli. To the uh, to the optimistic speeches being given at that time about progress. So, for example, the speech given by Prince Albert, you know, at the at the Crystal Palace about the brotherhood of man, that now there are trains and and we're achieving the connection and you can the connection of brotherhood, and you see how Albert foresees a brotherhood of man uh, in countries all effectively ruled by his descendants, um, and then you <laughs> compare that to the great warnings of Churchill, one where he says in, in, in Parliament, totally against self-interest, where is your Christianity if not for their Judaism? And then the, the depiction in Tancred of the son of a duke standing on Mount Sinai 
hearing a vision that he has to go back and tell the West that only with Sinai can the West truly progress. That's pretty Jewish. <laughs> and so, yeah, no, it's, 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 it certainly is. No, no, no. He, so, he's much more than an honorary, um, isn't he? And so there's so much you can, there's so much that we can still wonder at. Uh, did church, did Israeli deliberately, as some suggest, deliberately marry an older woman uh, who was not Jewish, but also beyond childbearing age, so he would not have to face the 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 possibility of raising non-Jewish children uh, with the Disraeli name. Uh, did he really mean it when he supposedly described himself as the blank page between Jewish and Christian scripture uh, in the Bible? Uh, all these will remain a bit of a mystery. No, they won't, because uh, it's all going to be explained in my book. Oh, um, excellent. So you're not well, to worry about then, any of that. Well, you heard it here first, and I can't wait uh, for it to be explained in Congregation Share with Israel. But about the, the Jewishness of of Disraeli and the way he used his Jewishness in his public political persona about that, uh, with the exception uh, in the 19th century uh, of 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 Moses Montefiore, it's hard to think of someone in the English speaking world. George Eliot writes uh, Romola, doesn't she? Um, uh, which is one one um, book that's. Uh, a bit like Tancred in a way, the, wouldn't you say? The, uh, the, which book? I'm sorry, I didn't hear. I'm sorry. George, George, George Eliot. Eliot. Yes. George um, Eliot, of course, but was not writing from a, a, sta- a perspective of statesmanship. Absolutely. No. Uh, no. That's, and without Tancred, I don't know, would, would there have been a Daniel Deronda without a Tancred? That's uh, that's an interesting question in its own right. Can we move on now to the fifth and last of the threads, which is about uh, connecting the Jewish past to um, its present and future, the, the work done by David Ben-Gurion, obviously in his politics, but also in his lectures and with his correspondence, and by Menachem Begin um, with his concept of David's city and uh, the Israeli people being uh, like the Maccabees, and the, the, the Israeli people in the 20th century yes. being like the like the Maccabees. So what, um, uh, how important is this this concept of, uh, of connection to the past, which is really the, the central feature? So this is central, and this goes back to what I mentioned to you about for us, for Jews, biblical figures are not dead. Uh, my my great uncle, Rabbi Joseph Soloveitchik, described the Jewish approach to time as embodying a, what he called a unitive time consciousness. Uh, tonight, Andrew, as we're recording this, tonight I am going to go to, I am going to go to synagogue and we're going to turn out the lights and mourn. Tonight is the ninth of Av, Tisha B'Av. And uh, I'm going to mourn the destruction of the temple in Jerusalem that occurred at the hands of Rome in 70 CE and many hundreds of years before that at the hands of Nebuchadnezzar. Wow. What other people mourns events that occurred uh, 2,000 years ago and, and more than 2,000 years ago? And yet, Andrew, and you can go online and find this, when Menachem Begin, elected as prime minister, came to meet with President Carter, uh, he went on. He went uh, in the evening of that very same. He came in the summer. He met at the White House with Carter, and then he came to New York. And the night of the ninth of Av, just like tonight, he went to synagogue. In that synagogue, they sat on the floor. So you have the Prime Minister of Israel sitting on the floor and mourning uh, for the Jerusalem. Here you have a man who leads a united Jerusalem, and he's mourning for the destroyed Jerusalem. And then the next morning, he goes on meet the press. And the reporter begins by reminding him, and this is extraordinary, that the last time he had been on Meet the Press was in 1948, 
and that one of the people on the panel had been there in 1948, the journalist. And when they interviewed him then, he was this uh, 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 figure that led a very small fragment of the Israeli populace uh, and someone that Ben-Gurion hated fiercely. And now he was being interviewed as the prime minister of Israel. So if ever there was a moment to celebrate his achievement, it was this. And so they asked him what, what about his conversation with Carter. And instead of focusing on himself, he said something like, well, first, let me explain what today is. And he says, today is in the Jewish calendar, the ninth of Av, when in the year 70 CE, the Roman legions, and then he, he gives the number, the fifth and the twelfth, the Roman legions, the fifth and the twelfth destroyed Jerusalem. And he says, and since then we were in exile until we returned. And then he effectively says, and 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 my job for my duty is to prevent the destruction from happening again. And, and, and I bear that in mind. It, it's hard to think of any statement from any other country speaking like that. Mm. Even, you, you, I, I assume you're familiar with the movie Patton. Uh, yes, Andrew, yes, of course. Which I, I love, love. I love. And it was actually Nixon's favorite movie I've since learned. Um, but there's a wonderful scene at the beginning where uh, Patton is traveling with Bradley in Morocco, and they pass one of the sites of the battle from, I think, the Punic Wars or something like that. And he says, Patton says, George C. Scott says, pull over, pull over, right? And they pull over, and he says something like, it was here, Brad. It was here. The Carthaginians fought valiantly, but the Romans were too strong. And and Bradley is looking at him like he's Meshuga, you know, like, like who talks this way? Um, <laughs> you know, but for Jews, it's quite natural. And yet very few statesmen speak of David or the Maccabees or the destruction of Jerusalem as if it happened uh, quite, quite recently. Um, how far back, Andrew, did even, even Churchill, who was the ultimate historian statesman, how far back did his frequent historical references reach? I think this is, is an interesting question. Um, I think, uh, yes, yes. We're talking Agincourt. Agincourt really. He did write about, right. he did write about, um, about Alfred and the cakes yes. and about William the Conqueror, but his, but his regular references were the, as the far mid- back as Agincourt. And that's really the furthest, the middle ages onwards, you know? Yes. And so certainly not thousands of years. For of Judaism, that's, that's very recent. Yes. <laughs> the battle, yes. of, the battle of Agincourt. <laughs> oh. And so, uh, and and of course, uh, one of the striking uh, things about Disraeli is that Disraeli understood this, this unique aspect. One of the most incredible scenes uh, in Tancred is he depicts uh, a celebration of Sukkot, what was originally the biblical harvest festival, and he described and that Jews throughout the centuries built harvest huts that they would sit in. And he describes Jews creating these huts in the slums of the city of London, uh, which, of course, to the passersby seems ridiculous. Sukkot in in October in London is not a beautiful harvest festival. It's rainy and it's wet. Who would sit outside? <laughs> and he describes these sort of, uh, you know, these uh, uh, the cracks of of the uh, anti-Semitic cracks of people in London walking by and making fun of this harvest festival, that they're remembering the vintage of the ancient land of Israel. And then Disraeli writes something like, he writes something like, a people that refuses to forget its vintage will one day reclaim its vintage. That's what he writes. And in the 18, 
when was Tancred published? 1850s? 1847. Uh, 1847. He writes this before Daniel Deronda, before the Jewish state. Um, and he understood that a people that that saw its ancient past as if it were yesterday uh, had a bond with its land uh, that was unlike any other. And how could this not, if this is at the essence of Jewish life itself, how can it not be at the essence of decisions that Jewish statesmen make? And uh, I'm working now on, uh, and I hope to write on this in the future, on uh, the, the Begin-Sadat friendship and relationship. That's amazing. Uh, and there are, there are moments in the negotiations that uh, my sense is that when Begin would make references to, about Jerusalem to Carter uh, about thousands of years ago, I think Carter thought he was crazy. Uh, and I, I think this is something that Sadat perhaps understood more about Begin th- than Carter, because when 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 Begin would speak about what Jerusalem meant to the Jewish people, he was operating on a timeline that I think Jimmy Carter just couldn't understand. But it's so central to what truly excellent Jewish statesmanship is all about. And of course, you're asking not only do I remember as a Jewish statesman what happened thousands of years ago, but if I represent an eternal people, you're asking how will my decision be remembered thousands of years from now? Tell me, what book are you reading at the moment, Solly? So uh, I'm, I've been rereading uh, two different books. Uh, one is uh, Phrysis by Henry Kissinger, uh, because uh, this Yom Kippur uh, marks uh, the uh, 50th anniversary of the Yom Kippur War. Uh, and so I have two motivations. Obviously, uh, I, I need, as a rabbi, I need sermon material. That's most important, obviously. You know, so I need to have <laughs> something to talk about. But also, I would like to, uh, I would like, even as Israel will no doubt remember the Yom Kippur War and learn its lessons, I would like there to be an event in America by American Jewry remembering Operation Nickelgrass, which was the airlift. Uh, where after much, uh, after some delay, Nixon famously just said, uh, get those planes in the air. Uh, and I think was probably the most important moment in the American-Israel relationship. And I think it deserves to be remembered. Uh, and so uh, I hope to remember it there. It's very um, it's very interesting you should mention Yom Kippur because it's a very key moment in a book that I'm publishing with David Petraeus in October called Conflict. Oh, wow. It's called Conflict and it's about the evolution of warfare 1945 to Ukraine. And Yom Kippur is a absolutely central war to how war evolves from the Second World War era um, through to uh, to the kind of fighting we're seeing today. Oh, wonderful! Uh, and what's the second book? Uh, the, the second the, book the, I'm re- I'm I'm rereading now is uh, and he came up uh, is uh, uh, Abigail Green's amazing biography of Sir Moses Montefiore, uh, which is I think is uh, oh, yes. yes an absolutely incredible book. And well, we have his we've had his descendant Simon C. Montefiore, the historian, on this yes. See, uh, the on this descendant podcast. of his family of his family. Montefiore yeah. himself didn't have no heirs no no. Of, uh, uh, of, of his, of, of his family, yes, exactly. and I assume a cousin of Abigail Green, who wrote the book. Uh, I'm assuming. That's amazing. Um, and um, and uh, he would be the the most important political Jew of the 19th century, were it not for the fact that uh, uh, Herzl seized the the title at, in the 1890s. But mm. uh, I, I'm coming to think uh, that uh, that he may have been the most impressive uh, public Jew. Uh, of of the 19th century, 
uh, uh, though uh, Herzl in the end will end up being more influential. Yes. Uh, but for a man who combined and was himself a, a true proto-Zionist or a father of the Zionist movement, uh, that Herzl then uh, went down uh, to bring into true existence. And a man, I, I hope it's okay for me to mention, uh, Andrew, uh, since uh, I know, I assume uh, you've gone through this procedure now, but a man who uh, petitioned the Duke of Norfolk uh, to uh, put Jerusalem into his coat of arms. Uh, which been, <laughs> And so I don't know. And so I will take this opportunity to uh, wish you a congratulations on your uh, ennoblement. Uh, and, <laughs> Thank uh, you very and I don't much. know what the procedure for coats of arms is right now. Uh, but uh, I, I just mentioned that this was something that he did. And uh, when he was knighted and when Queen Victoria said the words, arise, Sir Moses, uh, he was very proud to have both uh, the British symbol of his coat of arms flying, but with the Hebrew words Jerusalem uh, flying. Uh, That's magnificent. Within the coat of arms as well. My uh, my coat of arms has got a quote from Churchill ah. uh, in Latin as the uh, as the motto. Oh, wonderful. Um, now, uh, what about um, what about your counterfactual, your favourite what if? Okay. What's uh, what's the one that uh, amuses? Oh, I'm very excited yeah. about this. When you told me in advance that we would have a counterfactual, yeah, I warned you about this one because yes, and I wanted to really do justice to uh, my friendship with you, uh, Andrew, and so I wanted it to be a, a truly complex historical counterfactual. I didn't want it to be just like you know, what if Churchill hadn't survived being hit on Fifth Avenue or. Or what if the Archbishop had survived, you know, and of the, the Archduke, the Archduke I'm sorry, yeah, the Archbishop, yes, the yeah. Archbishop. <laughs> the Archduke, sorry, my apologies. Um, but uh, so I, I've come up with one that I think is, is unites Jewish and British history uh, and is sufficiently uh, complex. And I'd love your thoughts on it. So uh, here we go. So uh, during World War I, uh, the British prime minister originally uh, was Herbert Asquith. Uh, and uh, his protege uh, in uh, the uh, cabinet was Edwin Montague, uh, who uh, was from a very prominent and actually a Zionist supporting family, but he was a staunch anti-Zionist and uh, hated Zionism in all of its forms. Uh, Whereas in the cabinet originally, the chief proponent of Zionism uh, was his first cousin, uh, Herbert Samuel, who was also originally Uh, in the cabinet. Now, both Herbert Asquith and Montague were obsessed with a woman by the name of Venetia Stanley. Uh, And then, but of course, Herbert Asquith was all, was married. So, you know, couldn't uh, afford. And I think 35 years older as well. The whole story is very creepy, but that's not part of the uh, counterfactual (laughs) right now. Uh, Edwin Montague, after a much uh, persistence and pressuring, uh, finally got Venetia Stanley uh, to agree to marry him. And this, by all accounts, uh, led in part to the emotional breakdown of Asquith, which has been cited by historians as a part of his uh, political downfall and the rise of Lord George and Balfour, uh, who were, of course, tremendous proponents of the Jewish future uh, in the Holy Land. And of course, uh, the, the chief anti-Zionist uh, had not only lost uh, uh, that his 
his great mentor politically was no longer prime minister, but of course there's a great rift uh, between the two of them uh, because of what he had done in marrying Venetia Stanley. This is uh, what has been described rightly in some articles as uh, the love triangle that was linked to the Balfour Declaration. And so my counterfactual is if Venetia Stanley had not accepted the proposal of Edwin Montague, would there be a Jewish state today? <laughs> Actually, it gets a bit weirder yes. and darker, not darker necessarily, but weirder, yes. um, except one obviously has to factor in the fact that these uh, these Edwardians had uh, very different um, uh, social mores, yes. which was that That's when an understatement. he... Uh, you can yes. say that again. When he heard about um, Venetia Stanley getting married to Edwina Montague, um, the person who consoled um, Herbert Asquith was his wife, Margot, oh, who, who, who hugged him <laughs> as he cried uh, on the sofa, and she consoled her husband at, about the loss of her husband's um her husband's mistress. So, um, <laughs> yes, it's, uh, and, and it's in, in England, as we say, it's not like the home life of our own dear queen. Indeed, indeed. <laughs> and uh, as Edwin Montague then was given, I think, uh, I don't know, was he something uh, the secretary, something linked to India? I think was his. Uh, yes, was he became secretary for India, India and was and, and was 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 packed off there. And he wrote in his diary as he heard of the Balfour Declaration. He basically felt personally wounded by the Balfour Declaration. And yes, and, and it certainly would never have happened uh, on his watch. So uh, yes, and he writes that the British government has brought. This gets back to one of our part of our discussion. And he wrote in his diary, the British government has brought into being a people that does not exist. Yeah. That was his line. What a monstrous, monstrous thing for a Jew to, uh, so, to write. So I, I gave it a lot of thought. I hope you approve of my yes, counterfactual. Yes, I do very much. I'm quite <laughs> proud of it. I'm quite proud. I must admit, I've, 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 I've uh, edited a book of counterfactuals years ago, and that's certainly one that I've never heard of before. Yes. Um, there we go. Uh, that's a great tribute. Thank you. You've made my day. Um, thank you. So, Solly, thank you so much for coming on Secrets of Statecraft. I've really enjoyed it. Thank you. It's such an honor to engage in this discussion with you. Thank you so much, Andrew. Thank you, Solly. Please tune in to the next episode of Secrets of Statecraft, when my guest will be Robert O'Brien, former National Security Advisor under Donald Trump. This podcast is a production of the Hoover Institution, where we generate and promote ideas advancing freedom. For more information about our work, to hear more of our podcasts or view our video content, please visit hoover.org.